We're in a series in Leviticus, and that story that was just depicted there, just kind of a short little 30-second spot, is the story that really leads up to Leviticus. And if you were here this last week, what we talked about was uh, that Leviticus is all about, it's, it's an ABC book of how to do life with God. God made promises to Abraham about a son. Uh, Isaac was born. We have, the, have Jacob giving birth to his 12 sons. We've got uh, Joseph going down to Egypt. We have the, the multitude of people enslaved in Egypt. And then we've got Moses leading them out. Uh, and they go through the Red Sea and they get in the wilderness and God is with them. Yet they don't know this God. And so God is going to tell them how to do life with him, who he is and how to do life with him. If you were here this last week, we, we learned, as we did this overview of Leviticus. In, in Leviticus chapters 1 through 17, uh, those chapters are all about God saying, I am holy. And Leviticus 18 through 27 is the response to that first section of, I am holy, so you are going to be holy. And, and we, we talked about the misconception of holiness. Sometimes holiness is misunderstood. We hear God say, I am holy, you're going to be holy. Sometimes we feel like, well, there's no way I can measure up to that. And what God is saying, holiness literally means to be a cut above or to be in a class by yourself. So we read passages like in Revelation chapter 4 where the living creatures are around the throne and day and night they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What they are saying is God is in a class by himself. God is in a class by himself. God is in a class by himself. Whether it's purity, whether it's love, whether it's justice, justice or righteousness, whatever attribute of God there is, God is an infinite cut above everything else. So when he's calling us to be holy, what he's saying is live your life in such a way that your life is lived a cut above. Not in a religious, rule-producing, uh, mean-spirited, sort of legalistic way. No, in, in a way in which you live your life and become like Christ. That's what it means to be holy as God is holy. And so we looked at some of those practical implications in the end of Leviticus. The ABCs of holiness... What, what God says, here's where you start, is surprising to us because oftentimes we, we take it to, to different, uh, different directions. God says, here's letter A, be a cut above in how you handle your relationships. Be in a class by yourself in how you treat people. That's the letter A. The second thing we learned is be a cut above in how you handle your time. The 20% of the Jewish calendar was given to things like Sabbath and feasts and appointed times. So be a cut above in how you handle your time. And then that, that's letter B. Letter C would be then be a, a cut above in how you handle your resources or your money. So that, that's, that's the ABCs of holiness. I think sometimes we go different directions. But what God is saying, I want you to be like me. I want you to be like holy. holy uh, Leviticus uh, is, a, is a primer. It's an ABC book. Uh, we reflect on that. Some of us are old enough to remember the Dick and Jane books. Uh, that, that's what Leviticus is. It's saying, here's how you begin to do life with God, A, B, and C. And uh, if you were in, uh, uh, in, your, in your studies this last week, you did some study on the tabernacle, and that's what we're, we're going to be uh, talking about today. Back in 1954, a guy named Marvin Miller Sr. was about to be deployed with the U.S. Navy, uh, he was going to be on the water for 18 months, and so he, on this one day in 1954, gave his wife a kiss goodbye, uh, got on his knees and, and hugged his six-year-old boy, Marvin Miller Jr., 
and, uh, and, 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 and hugged him and told him goodbye, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't see his, his son or his wife for 18 months. He was out on, on the water for 18 months uh, with, the, with the U.S. Navy, didn't hear any news from home, and when he got home, what he discovered is that his wife had left him and had taken his six-year-old boy with him, and they had disappeared um, and he began searching for them. He began uh, asking people in his town if they'd heard anything, any news about uh, his wife or his son. And, and uh, he had discovered that his wife had left him. But he wanted to see his boy again. Um, and he couldn't find him. Months went by. Years went by. Some of you in this room are, are a little bit younger. And you're saying, why didn't they, did he use Facebook? Well, Facebook wasn't around then. Uh, and and you, you had to write letters. You had to knock on doors. Um, and Marvin Miller Sr. did this, um, and he never found his son uh, until 2011, 57 years later. With the help of family and, yes, Facebook, he tracked down his son that in 1954, he had been on his knees and hugged that six-year-old boy goodbye and had been on this quest to find him and see him again now he's 63 years old, and there's a reunion taking place, and once again, a guy in his late 80s is able to get his hands on his son, and tears are cascading down his, his cheeks as he has this reunion that he has been longing for. That little story of life here in the U.S. is a, is a small story of a larger narrative of which the Scriptures is all about. It's about a God, a father God, who's been separated from his kids, and he wants to be with them again. He's longing to hold them again, to walk with them again. The circumstances of our story in Scripture is different than Miller's story uh, of his own personal life. Yet, in it, the same father heart exists. And what I want to do today as I talk about the tabernacle is, is set it in the context of God's heart for people so you understand this significant point in God's choice to be with his people in the wilderness. So we, we need to understand that, that, that larger narrative. And it begins in Genesis. You know the story. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And they were banished from the garden. That sin wasn't just some haphazard mistake like, whoops, I did something. No, sin, as we learned in our study of the Romans last year, sin, there's three components to it. The first one is, is, is described by the word trespass. It means uh, to, to cross a boundary. That, that's the first component of sin. The second component of sin is, is, is this word lawlessness. Lawlessness is an attitude that says, don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me what to do. That's the second component of sin. The third component is to, is to miss the mark or to fall short. So when Adam and Eve eat from this tree they're told not to, what they did is they crossed a boundary they possessed an attitude that says, don't tell me what to do. And what happened is they fell short. That's sin. And at the root of all sin is not just the act, it's the attitude behind the act. We have to understand that. So God, because of that, that sin, he, he evicts Adam and Eve from the garden. And we read in, in, in the book of Genesis that he walks, him out, walks them out the east gate to the garden and when they get outside, there's cherubim that are posted at that gate with, uh, with flaming swords so they can't come back in. And, uh, and those, by the way, are not just incidental details. We'll see as we look today at the tabernacle of how, how this plays a part in the narrative that God has been writing. 
So God's, God's kids have been, have been removed, they've been taken captive uh, by sin, and so now what God is going to do, he has that father heart, he wants to be reunited with his kids, so he's gonna begin this narrative of being reunited with his sons and his daughters, and it begins in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, God is talking to Abraham, he's 99 years old now, and what he says to, to, uh, to Abraham is, I'm gonna make a covenant with you, and I will be your God. It's the first chapter in the narrative. We get to Exodus chapter six, Moses is going down to Egypt, he's telling, the, telling Pharaoh, let my people go. And in Exodus chapter six, God is talking to Moses, and he repeats chapter one of the narrative he's gonna be writing. We're gonna see this all through the pages of scripture. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I'm gonna rescue you, and I'm gonna be your God, and you're gonna be my people. When we get to Leviticus, we'll find in chapter 26 of Leviticus, a third chapter to the narrative. I will be your God, I will be your God, you'll be my people. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. This is where God is saying, I wanna get my hands around you again. I wanna be with you, I wanna walk with you. And so he's gonna, this is where the tabernacle is going to fit in. But if you know the full story of the people of Israel, what's gonna happen is they're gonna get to the promised land. That tabernacle is gonna become a temple. Solomon's gonna build this amazing temple and God's kids, his sons and daughters, are going to sin again. They're gonna cross boundaries. They're gonna say to him, don't tell me what to do. And they're gonna miss the mark. And so once again, what God is going to have to do is banish them again. Not from the garden, but from the land. They're gonna be removed from the land and go into exile because they couldn't keep the law. They didn't do the things that God asked them to do. So as they're going into exile, a prophet named Jeremiah in chapter 31 writes these words. Let me read them to you. There's a new covenant coming. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There it is again. I will be your God, you will be my people. You couldn't keep the law, so what I'm going to do is I'm gonna write it on your hearts so that you can, so that I can be your God, you can be my people, and I can dwell among you. So what we have is this, this prophecy of this day that is culminated in Acts chapter two. The Holy Spirit falls on the followers of Christ at the, at the Feast of Pentecost, which, by the way, was an appointed time in which the people of God celebrated receiving the law. They received the law, and now they're gonna receive the law, and it's gonna be written on their hearts. That's what happens at Pentecost. The timing is, is perfect. So we see that happen in, in Acts chapter two, and then Hebrews chapter eight, verse 10, again, tells us what God is up to. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There it is again in Hebrews. I'm gonna write my law on their hearts. Then we get to the last book of the Bible. We started in Genesis. Now we get to Revelation and we read this in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So here we are in Revelation, and we read, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. This is the ultimate realization of a God, a father God, who's been separated from his sons and daughters, and at that moment, he gets his arms around them, and he is able to to hug his kids who have been separated from him. It's ultimately realized in the last chapter. And you look at this from Genesis to Revelation, and the conclusion that we can come to is that God has not missed a beat. He has been, from the beginning, pursuing sons and daughters, wanting to be your God, wanting you to be his people, and wanting to dwell among us. He wants to be with you. He wants you to know him. And it's in that grand narrative, that large narrative, that the tabernacle story fits. That's, that's where this, this story fits. So what I want to do is, we, we know the larger story. What we're going to see now is how God is going to make this happen. And we're going to look at the Old Testament version of that happening. So we'll, we're going we're to zoom in here and we're going to take a look at the tabernacle to see how God's going to do this. Now, gone are the days of flannel graph. This is the best I could do, all right? This is actually an, an app you can get for free. It's called Glow Bible and it's got a bunch of virtual tours on it. So what we're going to do is we, we're looking at Sinai right now. Uh, and you're, you're going to see the camp of Israel, and right in the middle of it, what you're going to see is uh, the tabernacle, and so we're going to zoom in, and the whole layout of the camp is organized by tribe. There's 12 tribes, and right in the center of this camp is going to be the tabernacle. So we're zooming in right there, and right there at the bottom, you see the tent of Moses, that's that part, portion when you're, uh, when you're reading the Bible and you read about the pillar of cloud coming on the tent uh, where Moses met with God. That, that would have been that tent there. And then you see the, the, this, this area of which the tabernacle is, and there's a courtyard there. And by the way, you can see that entrance to the, to the, to the courtyard of the tabernacle. God gave specific instructions to Moses and said, put the entrance on the east side. What side did God walk Adam and Eve out of the garden? East. So God is making a statement here. There's symmetry symmetry involved here. What he's saying is, I walked you out the east side and banished you, and I'm going to reunite you with me, and I'm going to bring you in the same direction you had to go. I'm, 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 I'm taking you out there. And, uh, and I'm bringing you back in. So that, that's the, the, the tabernacle there from kind of this, this big picture of you looking in. Now we're gonna zoom in to this, this courtyard that's got this sort of this, uh, this uh, fence around it and, and you're gonna see some stuff happening in this, this outer courtyard. We've got a, a, this outer court, we've got a, an altar, the bronze altar. When we get into Leviticus, what you're going to see is all kinds of offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings, burnt offerings. That's going to take place at that altar there. 
And, uh, and then right in front of the tabernacle, uh, you have the, the bronze laver, and that is a place where the priests would wash their hands and wash their feet before they went into the tabernacle. And remember, this tabernacle is all about God wanting to be with his people. And he's going to set up this, this tabernacle system. So what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in, and, uh, and then and what we're going to do is we're just going to peel back uh, that, that, that side of, of the tabernacle there, and we're going to take a peek in here. And what you're going to see is the holy place and the holy of holies. The section on the right is the holy place, and, and this is where the priests are at work. We've got the, um, the candlestick, the seven, uh, seven wicks there on that, on that menorah. You've got the bread of presence there on, on, the, on the other far side of that holy of holies or the holy place. Then you have the altar of incense that's right before uh, that veil there. And uh, so zoom in now. Now we're gonna zoom right inside. This is what that room would have looked like if you were standing in it. You got uh, the candlestick that's Way too close to that curtain for you firemen in the room. I know you're, I know you're thinking that. Uh, and then you got, you got your, your, your showbread there. You get the altar of incense. Notice those animals on the curtain there? Those animals on the curtain are cherubim. What stood guard to the gate of the Garden of Eden? Cherubim. So what's happening here is the cherubim were the, the ones who protected the presence, okay, the presence of God. And, and so... There's, there's, there's symmetry here, okay? God is restoring a relationship with his sons and daughters. And he is, he's giving us hints. He's showing us that his father heart is, yes, you are separated from me, but I'm gonna bring you back in the same way you went out, and I'm gonna bring you into my presence because I want to be with you. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. So we're looking at this tabernacle, and we pull back out of the tabernacle, um, and uh, we see that, 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 that courtyard again in, in the tent of meeting. And if we were to zoom out farther, you'd see all those, those tents. And, and here's the deal. The people of God, while God was dwelling among them, they had limited access. One tribe out of 12 got to be in the tabernacle. And one person... Uh, uh, got to go inside the, we forgot to go in the, into the Holy of Holies. Can we do that, Brad? Is that gonna mess you up? Let's go in the Holy of Holies and look at what the, the ark would have been. This, have been. this is a 15 by 15 room where the Ark of the Covenant is, we'd open the Ark of the Covenant, but if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, that'd be bad. Uh, but th- that's, that's, basically, um, that's basically what that room would look like. Uh, pretty simple. You got the cherubim over the top of the Ark again. Um, and that, that's the Holy of Holies. And that, the high priest gets to go in there one time a year, on, on this day of national cleansing, we talked about that last week, one time, Yom Kippur, one time a year, goes into the Holy of Holies and, and, and uh, sprinkles blood in the mercy seat to cover the sins of, uh, of the people for that, that year. The tribes, one out of 12, gets access into this tabernacle. The Levites, one person gets into the Holy of Holies. Limited access. Now, quickly, flow of worship here. Here's the flow of worship in the, in the tabernacle. Here's your schematic of what that tabernacle looked like. And uh, the first thing you do is you enter. Uh, you enter in. Um, just like Jeff talked to us today. Let's, let's be here. Let's enter in. And then the, the next thing at the altar is, is sacrifice or confession. The bronze laver is symbolic of, con- of cleansing and forgiveness. And all the activity in the holy place is worship. 
And it's all about being in the presence of God. That's the flow of worship. So if you were designing a day away for yourself, your own Sabbath, and you wanted to, to, to have a day of worship, this would be a great model, one model, to, to worship. You know, enter in, uh, confession, receiving God's cleansing, worship that leads to an encounter with God. That's, that was the flow of worship uh, in, in the tabernacle. But as I mentioned, only one tribe out of 12 got into that tabernacle. Only one person got into the Holy of Holies. Limited access. Now, we know that when Christ comes, that his purpose is to give us full access. Christ is gonna come. In fact, Matthew records that when Christ dies on the cross, as he offers his life as a sacrifice, that veil that was there, now it's in another temple, it's called Herod's Temple, it's 42 feet tall, that veil, the moment Christ dies, is torn from top to bottom. Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells a story of that veil being ripped and the Jewish priests being shocked by it and sewing it back together quickly. The, the, the veil has been torn, though. And what God is saying is, I am now making it possible for you not to have limited access, but to have unlimited access into my presence. When my kids were younger... We took them to the Hood River County Fair. We did it every year, and uh, we lived in Hood River, Oregon, and took them to that fair. You get them in the fair, and we learned very quickly that the best thing to do is to buy the bracelet that the kids get to wear, because if they have that bracelet, they can ride any ride they want, as many times as they want. They can just go, 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 and, and do it. Unlimited access to the fair. If you didn't have the bracelet, you had to buy the tickets. When you ran out of tickets, you got to watch other kids ride the rides. Not nearly as thrilling and exciting. What happens in the New Testament is that we get the bracelet. We get unlimited access to God through Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. He has torn the veil. He is the light of the world, the lampstand. He is the bread of life, uh, the showbread. He is the great high priest who offers prayers at the, at the altar of incense. He is the one who takes us into the holy of holies. We have unlimited access in Christ. Remember now, this is all set in the grand narrative of a God who is saying, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. I want to be with you which in my mind prompts a question. If that is the case, if God wants to be with me, then why do I have moments in my own relationship with God where it feels like he's distant? Why, why do I have moments in my life where I don't feel like I've got unlimited access? I mean, I know I've got unlimited access, but there's, I just feel like God's distant. If, if we've got this torn veil, why do we have stagnation? Why do we have dry moments? What's going on here? Well, there are probably a lot of ways to answer that question, but half of the, uh, of, part of answering that question is first of all, knowing that it's not about God not wanting to be with us. Because we see the grand narrative from Genesis to Revelation. I want to be with you. So it's not because God doesn't want to be with you. It's got to be something else. A.W. Tozer is a pastor and 
writer of, uh, author of, of many books, in a book called Born After Midnight, I think answers the question pretty well. Let me read uh, a paragraph from his book. He writes, the person who is content to follow Christ afar off will never know the radiant wonder of his nearness. The man who is willing to settle for a joyless, barren life will never experience the joy of the Holy Spirit or the deep satisfaction of fruitful living. It is disheartening to those who care and surely a great grief to the Spirit to see how many Christians are content to settle for less than the best. Personally, I have for years carried a burden of sorrow as I have moved among Christians who somewhere in their past have managed to strike a base compromise with their heart's holier longings and have settled down to a lukewarm, mediocre kind of Christianity, utterly unworthy of themselves and of the Lord they claim to serve. And such are found everywhere. You now have as much as you really want. Now listen carefully to this last sentence that Tozer writes. Every person is as close to God as he or she wants to be. They are as holy and as full of the Spirit as they will to be. Let me read that again. Every person is as close to God as he or she wants to be. They are as holy and as full of the Spirit as they will to be. What Tozer is saying is, it's not that God doesn't want to be with you. It's just that somewhere along in the journey, what we've chosen to do is keep God at a distance. But we have the bracelet. And we have unlimited access. And he wants to be with us, yet somewhere along the way, we got content with a life with God that keeps him over there and I'm over here. And the reality is, is that God wants to wrap his father arms around you. He wants a reunion with you. He wants to hold you close. And he wants to do life with you. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, Fowler, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You, you don't know my past. You're right, I, I don't know. But what I do know is that God's removed every hurdle, including mistakes that you've made, poor decisions you've made, or whatever it is that you might think of that you think God would keep you at a distance. He's removed it all so that you could do life with him. And you are as close to God as you want to be. So what do you do? If you sense that the invitation is there, how, how, how do you do life behind the veil? You know, I, I think the starting point is, frankly, just finding a quiet place, getting on your knees and saying to God, God, I don't know how. All I know is I want to be close to you. Draw me near. Draw me near. And I guarantee you this. Because this is what he says in his word. If you seek me, you'll find me. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. So maybe the place for us is to understand that he wants to be our God. We are his people. And he wants to dwell among us. Not so that just some of us can encounter him. So that every one of us can be as close to him as we possibly can even desire because he's the dad, 
who wants to get his hands on us and wants to look us in the eyes and say, welcome home. He longs for that reunion. He wants to be with us.